Hello and welcome to episode two of The Shortlist, the official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia. The Federation is the best point of contact for people requiring advice and guidance with their thoroughbred racing and breeding operations. Our members operate with the utmost integrity and professionalism, and members are, of course, bound by the strict FBAA code of ethics. My name is Mick Sharkey. I'm your host, as always. Joining me today are two of the FBAA members, Leonard Russo from Bluegrass Bloodstock and Dave Mee from Pinhook Bloodstock International. Gentlemen, hello. Welcome. Hello, Shark. How are you going? G'day, Mick. I'm very, very well. Glad to be here. Now, first time in the, in the chair after... Louis and Boomer did such a great job in episode one. Any any nerves, or are you pretty confident you're, you're media savvy and you're ready to rock and roll? Uh, we've got a, we've got a bit to live up to there. So. <laughs> <laughs> the boys did a good job the first one. So. <laughs> we'll be right, boys. It only hurts the first time. You'll be pros after this. Don't worry about that. You'll be uh, you'll be on telly and everything else. I uh, just wanted to, before we get into a bit of a chat about the, the yearling sales wrap and a, and a bit of a rundown of where the sale season has progressed to since last we spoke prior to the Melbourne Premier Sale at Inglis. Just wanted to get a little bit of a, a brief background about your businesses. Lenny, I'll, I'll ask you first, Bluegrass Bloodstock, tell me a little bit about your business. What's yep. the area of specialty there? Uh, formed in 210, Mick, and probably specialise in, in yearling selection. Mm-hmm. And of late, the last four years, um, New Zealand tried horses. Yeah. So that, that's probably the main part of bluegrass but um as with all agents you know we we've got to be um flexible and do everything so, yeah yeah and you've got some great experience working around the world and different places in ireland and new zealand so a bit of an international background to you and and uh dave with pinhook bloodstock international you very much are an international brand aren't you you're, you're trading to to asia you're, you're buying all over the place yeah, trying to be, Mick. Uh, look, I was established in 2005, and probably the first 10 years of my business, it was uh, predominantly sourcing, buying, selling tried horses for the domestic market, but um, had a lot of uh, experience selling up to Asia, primarily Hong Kong. I think, uh, actually checked this morning, um, up to this morning, I've sold 170 horses up to Asia, wow. primarily Hong Kong and Macau. Um, in the last four years, probably transitioned well, I have transitioned to essentially a full-service bloodstock agency, um, encompassing sort of four roles, auction representation, private brokerage, um, portfolio management, looking after people's affairs, racehorses, uh, broodmares, et cetera. And obviously, as the name suggests, um, pinhook partnerships where we we look to buy stock in various sectors of the game uh, and trade or retrade, hopefully for a profit. You know, for example, weanlings to yearlings, yearlings to trial horses or ready to runs, and also um, you know mares off the track, trading young mares in foal, etc. So it keeps us busy. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really fascinating part of the industry, and particularly when you look at the members that are involved in the FBAA. Lots of different areas of expertise and and specialty. You all yes. are working together and working across sales together and different sales and different markets and different clients and sometimes Lenny shared clients and whatnot. But yeah, there's a great camaraderie within the agents and within the agents here in Australia and everyone seems to be able to get along and get the job done and, and get great results, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty important, Shark, uh, that we can all sort of work together because uh, there'll be times that, you, you know, you've got to help a fellow agent out and... I think um, in the FBAA, all, all the 
everyone seems to get along really well and um, I've really enjoyed my time there and um, and to continue going on. Yeah, it's great. We'll talk a little bit more later on in the episode about the role of, of bloodstock agents in general and some of the, the particular areas that, that uh, people can, can use agents for. But I wanted to have another look back at the yearling sales because a, a bit of water has gone under the bridge since I sat with Boomer and, and with Louis at Premier prior to the start of selling there on the Sunday out at uh, Oaklands at Inglis. And the Premier sale continued the trend, didn't it, Lenny, with the strength of the yearling sales so far? The, the top lot was a cult for $1.1 million, a written tycoon jibe colt sold by uh, Blue Gum on behalf of Rob Crabtree, yep. who's a really prolific Victorian breeder, and, and they've formed a bit of a partnership, and, and, and uh, Crabby put a lot of horses through the Blue Gum draft this year, so a great result for them, but it wasn't just that top end of the market. There was really good strength and depth to that whole sale. There was, and uh, it's it's just maintained the, the consistent rise of the uh, Australian sales um, over the past few years. Uh, everyone thought, probably with with COVID, that uh, there was going to be a downturn in the sales, but it, it's probably been quite the opposite. Uh, mm. When you sort of think about it, it, the discretionary spend has just been up, where people probably haven't been able to travel overseas, and entertainment hasn't been, you know, going to the footy or out for dinner, and so they've probably been spending money on shares and racehorses and <laughs> racing continuing. God bless um, you. Uh, and the huge prize money that's on offer. <coughs> I think is is probably the, the main reasons that the sales just continue to grow. So I was having a conversation earlier today with uh, one of the the managerial staff at the VRC, and he was just saying, you know, have a look across the world, different states of different racing jurisdictions at the moment. Australia has weathered that COVID storm probably better than than most, and and race clubs now are planning for well, how do we capitalise on that? How do we capitalise on that? extra interest in wagering? How do we capitalize on that in- extra interest in horse ownership, which we're seeing mm-hmm. through the yearling sales? So it's got everyone thinking at different levels about how best to, to take advantage of the little free kick that we've had here with uh, with that upturn in, 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 uh, in sales and interest in the sport, which I think is a, a wise thing to do. Were there any sort of size or, or, or patterns that you noticed, Lenny, from Premier that you thought worth touching on? Well, I think at the moment... Um... We've got some really good young emerging sires. Um, it's been quite freakish, actually, this year um, with the, the two-year-old mm. uh, first crop size. You know, your Shalars, Capitalists, Extreme Choice, um, uh, Frosted. They've all, they've all sold really well, um, but they're, they're racing well, uh, which is important. And then your sires such as I'm Invincible, he averaged 314,000 at Melbourne. Um, written tycoon was 257 so they're quite healthy the 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 um, proven size are still uh, strong and then you've got the first season size such as hellbent pariah impending even uh el manzor from yeah. new zealand they brought a few of them over yeah. and they sold really well um dave probably seen a few of them at the sales as well i thought they were, great did, types. They were oh, look, they're impressive i mean they, they we saw probably you know the the, the uh, I would imagine that the the guys at Cinema were obviously showcasing the stallion. The Cambridge studs seen quite a few over, but or a number over, and um, they were they were really really nice horses. Yes, and and that sort of first season trend it wasn't just Eastern Seaboard. You look over at the Perth sale, the Magic Million sale over in in WA, and a, a Russian Revolution cult 
uh, from Magical Bell, made 325000 there for the, the Western Breeders Alliance. So, Dave, the it's you sort of forget about that per se a little bit, I think, when, when we're all playing up and down Sydney and Queensland and Victoria. It's on over there. It was strong, you know. Uh, 325 for that colt was, was really solid money. It was really good, and I, I think um, not, I've never actually been to, to the Purcell uh, due to family reasons uh, more than anything. But um, the Adelaide Sale and the Purcell, look, they had a number of horses in that uh, in the Adelaide Sale. Like they had a lovely capitalist, a couple of uh, two capitalists, Fastnet Rock, and a Merchant Navy with a wonderful pedigree. I mean, they made proper money. So. If you've got the type along with the pedigree to match, um, no matter where you place them, the the market will find them and they'll they'll generally make the money that they're worth. You know, if they were placed perhaps in a Magic Millions book or a Premier book one, you know, they would have made uh, uh, similar money mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps been highlighted against uh, the stock that were at those respective sales. I mean, they it was it was encouraging to see. I thought down in Tassie, the sale topper down there was an impending dream food. Colt for 150,000. The Wishaw family do such a great job at Armadale, and and they had quite a few of the the top ten lots sold in in Tassie, Len, which was great. But they also got great success, uh, the Wishaws in Armadale with uh, with an impending filly at Adelaide for 250,000 out of, of that candy corn baby corn line. So great farm down there in Tassie, yeah, and they're producing farm. good horses. They seem those impendings just uh, lovely, lovely moving horses. Mm. It's probably the main very consistent feature. too. Would very, you say? Yeah, very consistent across the board. But uh, the main thing that I, I noticed with they all seem to be able to walk. So mm-hmm. um, mm. that, that means they've got a bit of athleticism, and you're half a chance when they're going to get to the racetrack. Well, that particular filly, guys. Sorry to cut in there. She she was a she was a beautiful animal, uh, backed up with the pedigree, and that's just another example of look. You know the people realise that, that, you know, they're they're not easy to buy. So diamonds don't come cheap. So, you know, people were the competition was fierce, you know. So um yeah, but they're, they're a wonderful nursery though. They've you know, they're they're um prepared big, strong, well grown horses, um Bill. I was in oh at Adelaide for the Adelaide Magic Million sale and I point of interest that I noticed was Golden Farms just concentrated on the Adelaide sale this year. They had a big draft and and quite a strong draft and and they headlined that sale with a Fastnet Rock Colt uh, from Small Mines for 525000 So Golden's a, an interesting farm, Lenny, obviously uh, owned overseas, but yep. but locally run. Uh, Akidma Feed stood there for a number of years, and it was basically like a, you know, almost like an empire of mares. That's right. To go to Akidma Feed, Pan Su Tong's, you know, Hong Kong derby winner. But Yeah, and now uh, he's moved over to... Uh... Victoria was sweating them. Yeah, but another strong sale, Adelaide, yep. right across the board. I was trying to spec fillies there at sixty thousand, and they were going for a hundred. You know, I probably should find some more money, but you know, it was it was a basically a hallmark of the season and but, of that sale. But that's been pretty much consistent across the board. Is that you're finding your values mm. uh, are not what they meant to be this year? Like you know, everything's going for you know ten twenty percent more than even more than that sometimes than what you're valuing at. But I suppose that's just where the market's at at the moment. It's it's quite buoyant. We all sort of predicted that, you know, potentially a regression or, or a bit of a, a bit of cautious 
approach from buyers going into this, you know, sales season post COVID, and, and obviously we've seen that buoyancy that you speak of. I wonder as the world returns to normal, as Australia returns to normal, and people begin to travel and and get back to their normal habits of discretionary spend, if if next year we start to see maybe a realignment, we and we get that sort of settling of the market. As agents, do either of you guys plan that far ahead, or do you just play it as it comes and as the game presents to you? Oh, oh, look, it's, it's sorry. Go ahead, Lee. No, no, you you go, Dave. <laughs> well, it's hard to hard to predict. I mean, uh, it was this time last year that COVID um, uh, rose its ugly uh, ugly head, and um, you know there was obviously a lot of worry and concern. Didn't really know where the market was going to go, and it, and it's. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say that it's it's 12 months on. It's probably had the reverse effect of what we thought. So mm. um, how are we going to be situated in 12 months? It's hard to say. You know, the prize money, I think, is a is a real driving factor for the for the yearling prices, uh, along with the actual the each respective state's bonus schemes. I think especially up in Queensland, um, you know, they're quite patriotic and uh, they – you know the sale that the cuter sale up there was up probably on, on, by medium, but um, further than the other sale. Uh, Vobis, Bob's, um, you know South Australia's. Um, I think again that was a small reason why their sale was as strong as it was because there's a lot more confidence with mm. the prize money going up. The 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 Sabus reward scheme. So, um, how are we going to be situated in twelve months? Look, I I you know I take a cautiously optimistic view that it'll it'll just keep continuing. Hopefully. Keep the fingers crossed anyway. Fingers crossed for everybody, yeah. And I, I do know a lot of major races now that clubs are, are lobbying, and particularly here in Victoria, but they're lobbying for, for more prize money for those top-end races, particularly the sprint races, which seem to have been left behind a little bit in terms of prize money with yeah. you know, the, the, the prosper of sort of cup races and that sort of thing. So more cream on the cake, particularly in sprint races, major sprint races, at least here in Victoria going forward, and I'm sure uh, New South Wales won't be far, far behind any increases there. Yearling sales season continues to go to strength from strength. Dave, as far as the figures go, the statistics go, did anything jump off the page at you? Uh, yeah, look, it was it was interesting. I mean, um, we heard in the media, and, and it was I was at every sale, uh, Bar Perth, uh, uh, and the... The thing I took away from it that's slightly different, I don't want to get bogged down in paralysis by analysis, but the clearance rate uh, from Book One Magic Millions through to the Cuter sale, encompassing eight sales, uh, Book One and Two at Magic's uh, Classic, Melbourne, Perth, Tasmania, Adelaide and Cutis. Uh, 2020, the clearance rate was 81.9%. This year, it was... 87.5, so basically a 6% increase from the previous year. So what are we to garner from that? I think that the strength of the market uh, basically carried through from the top end through to the lower end, which is very encouraging. So um, predominantly all averages, all medians, I prefer to use the median numbers uh, as, as opposed to average Uh yeah. Apart from Magic Million Book 2, where they actually had another 134 horses catalogued in the previous year, it was a slight decrease in medium, but all other sales were slightly above the, uh, the, the, the median from the previous year. But the clearance rate, to me, is a strong indication of the strength of the market. And 
I think there's probably a number of reasons for that. Um, the I think, it, as Lenny and I discussed previously to the show, that it, it, um, it provides breeders with a lot of confidence when they mm. go to a sale, uh, along with... Um, you know the the advancement uh, and the changing dynamic of online sales. I think people that have a perhaps an inferior product, um, you know that they're think they're, they're they're budgeting. Look, if I take this horse to a sale, I'm, I'm probably going to lose money. So I think you'll find a lot of people are taking that inferior type and perhaps putting them online. Not always. So I think that's maybe a small contributing factor. Len, Len might have some other ideas as well. Yeah, no, no, I I, uh, I totally agree there, uh, Dave. Um, the the online platform, um, geez, it's it's been massive. Gone from strength to strength, strength hasn't it? For, yeah, strength sure to strength. Sure has. Um, and it, it does give those people an opportunity, the breeders that might have, might have bred a sort of an inferior product, um, that might get sort of caned at the sales. They don't. Yeah. So they. They'll say, "All right, well, we're not going to pay a, a sale entry fee, um, pay for the horse to be at the sales for a week. We'll keep it home, and we'll put it online, and we'll basically and get the same expense. money, minimum expense. Yeah, yeah. And it's just the way it's gone. And, and it's probably, and it's probably been reflected a little bit in, in which Dave was saying before, the clearance rates um, at the sales are, they're higher. The other benefit I've noticed." through a, you know, a farm point of view at Leneva Park when we've put horses online and they are kept at home, it brings people to you. So we've got that opportunity mm. while they're there inspecting the horses to have a chin wag yeah. and tell them a bit Good about point. what we're doing, about what where we're going. And they don't have the busyness of, rightio, uh, I've got four lots to see here, I've got another hundred to get through on, uh, on the day at the sales. Mm. They've got a little bit more time. Mm. So you, it's a great networking tool, strangely enough, because it is an online platform, but... Yeah, it's it's certainly changed the landscape. Definitely, definitely, definitely. <clears throat> this is a week after when we're recording the show. A week after the Golden Slipper was supposed to be run, <laughs> obviously that the, the horrible deluge of rain that sadly it's claimed a couple of lives now throughout uh, Queensland and New South Wales caused the postponement of that meeting, and now we're in the unprecedented situation where the whole carnival's been shifted back a week, but. Wet weather aside, and it looks like there'll be a wet track for the slipper in 2021, the Golden Slipper itself, guys, it's such an iconic Australian race. I think it speaks to everything that the Australian, modern Australian racing loves. Two-year-olds, fast horses, a bit of glamour, a bit of Sydney sort of pizzazz, and the ever-dangling carrot, particularly if you're a colt in the race, that your future at stud could be secured forevermore dave it's a it's a unique race on the on the world calendar and it's so important to the to the breeding industry how how do you see the golden slipper sitting in the i guess the pantheon of australian races when it comes to shaping breeding futures oh it's a holy grail really uh it's the the race i mean uh we won't put any specific numbers on it but it's generally accepted that you now if it's if it's a reasonably well-bred colt and it wins the race i mean the 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 stud uh rights will probably be in excess of 25 30 million um but it's not only that it's the actual um it, it's the cycle that it creates it's the pursuit of the golden slipper that to a large degree uh stimulates the the bloodstock the commercial marketplace uh because if you take 
take it back preceding the the golden slip of the actual race i mean in the pursuit of finding the horses capable of winning it you know you've got the you know the growing number of stallion uh syndicates who purchase uh well-bred uh good-looking um athletes for big money um so there's this fierce competition there to buy those colts and then when you take it down and not everyone's got that that the big bucks to spend those sort of horses but it's the focus for the, the large majority of uh, industry participants. So, you know, you, we're all looking for those, you know, to um, always looking to improve your stock. We're always looking for those early two-year-old type uh, horses. And that, that feeds into the weanling sales, that feeds into the yearling sales. And then, you know, taking it past the uh, the, the actual race with the with the stallions. I mean, the the money that the the people who own that horse are, um, you know, a lot of it's recycled money. You know, uh, as Lenny and I were talking about before the show, it's horse people being horse people. You know, if you if you have a lot of success, you generally go out and buy another couple of horses. So uh, with that chunk of change, you're reinvesting in mares, uh, more yearlings. So it does everyone within the game. Um, it has an effect on everyone, employment, turnover, uh, money spent at sales. So it, it's, it can't, uh, can't be under, underestimated, in my opinion, uh, the importance of the Golden Slipper. And Len, I mean, uh, you know, Len can uh, talk about some of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the pre-potent stallions that have shaped the breed of Australia that have won it. Well, that's right, Dave. And, and that's probably, probably the catalyst um, behind why the race is so important in the in the breeding industry is the success of slipper winners at stud so star kingdom started it he he, uh, he signed the first five winners and then you could see his sons you know all the way down and to now like you know slipper winners are like vain and marauding and then you got rory jester flying spur sebring piero and now capitalist, capitalist has got you know the favorite it's mm. just so i think that's why it's the lure when when you go to the sales um you're looking for that cult yeah because and that's where these stallion syndicates and everyone comes into play and it and it's money that just keeps coming through the industry so it's the thing i love about some of those stallions you mentioned and, and there's one there that stands out for me not only because i had fond memories of him on the punt that day but piero <laughs> was a golden slipper winner and you look at what he's producing you know he's almost not a classic sire in terms of your derbies and everything else, but he's a guineas and a 2,000 metre. Like, he's a high-class sire for, of horses that get that little bit of a trip and train on their three-year-old year. So it's, it's not just about, you know, if, if a, a colt happens to win it this year, and you mentioned Star Kingdom and the success of his project, but it's not just about that speed. Some of these stallions could become so influential. For, for other races and, and important races, your guineas and the like later on. Sebring's another one. Yeah. It, yeah, they're, they're not necessarily just out-and-out out speed, but it's the foundation of what we breed here in Australia, and it's what we're known for, is precocity and speed. Um, fast horses. What about fillies that win it, Dave? You know, in terms of their value, does it automatically... You know, a mare can only have one foal a year, but is it, does it automatically yep. guarantee their future as a, as a broodmare long-term? Because as far as recent Golden Super winners are concerned... 
quite a few of them have been have been fillies. Uh, Kia Michi, you mentioned yes. Esther Jarb, She will rain. Uh, Moss Fun back in 2014 on another uh, a, a wet track day. Mm. So there's been yes. quite Crystal Lily. If you want to go back a bit further, Merlin, Forensics, yes, Finland. No, it's it's been a good like Polar Success has yeah. been another one. There's well, that's a two kilo weight concession as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it does help. And those girls are as big as the boys, most of them, those fillies. So on a wet track, and I'll ask you about each of your opinion, does a wet track slipper, and we're not trying to predict the winner here, but do you look back and say, oh, well, Horse X won the slipper on a heavy track, you, you, you sort of almost take points off a little bit? Or, or does it is it just the fact that the slipper is such a sought-after contest, you know, wet, dry, indifferent, it's going to be a, a hard-fought, high-pressure race and you can trust the form out of it because of the race it is? Uh, look, I, I, I think it's... Um... It would be. It's a shame when the horse, the tra- that when the races run on a wet track, because I certainly probably discounted in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, as we all know, wet track form can really throw up some anomalies, and um, I'm um, well. No one wanted the race to be cancelled. I think it was the right thing to do, among other things, uh, not only for the race itself, but um, yeah, I would prefer to see it on a on a on a fairer surface, a good to dead, you know, dead four or five. I think that's probably a fairer assessment of the of that particular years um the caliber of the horse if he was to win it in a heavy 10 it's it, it does in my mind i can only speak for myself i think it's definitely throws up a little bit of a question mark lenny might have other ideas no um i think any time you get on wet ground you, you, yeah you can throw in, in different form so your times are always quicker on firm ground it's just it's just the way most people do form so and that and that relates yep. back to when you're looking at stallions at stud you always question mark on a stay-in that's won a group one on a on a bog um, as opposed to something that's run one eight and change, you know, uh, of 1,200 on firm. So, yeah. It's a fascinating race every year. It's a race everybody looks forward to across the Australian breeding and racing landscape. Good luck to everybody involved. Uh, good luck to all those that took a punt on, on buying a colt or a filly with the dream of getting there. Somebody's going to get a good result out of it and can't wait to see the race and, and review it and, and see where the winner goes from there on. Gentlemen, I want to talk about the role of Federation Bloodstock Agents Australia, agents in particular. You know, it's yep. it's a group that has the ethic, the code of ethics behind it, very strict terms in terms of, uh, in regard to admission, membership admission. It's not just an all-in, you know, you hang your shingle out on a bloodstock agent, you can come into the group. There's criteria that need to be met, and we covered that with, with Louie and Boomer in episode one. Why is it important, Lenny, and I'll, I'll start with you first. If you're looking to get into racing or breeding, why is it important for, for people to engage an agent? What, what's the benefit there for, for the customer? Well, for, for the customer, the agent basically is providing advice um and and generally drawing on their knowledge and experience um research and then physically assessing horses um through experience so and uh that that's what you can offer like the 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 customer just that that experience and and uh and also with the fbaa we're we're bound by code ethics so the transparency is there transparency is huge isn't it it's huge yeah and Dave, that experience that Lenny's sort of talking about, well, you look through, you get on the FBA website and you look at the members and you go back and you look at their CVs. We're talking about decades of experience 
and you're you are literally seeing you guys thousands of horses a year aren't you 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 know you've got as good an idea about of anyone of what works what to avoid where there's potential where there's value i think that's such a key thing for people wanting to get into the sport and into breeding Yep, I think you've nailed it there, actually, Shark. Look, aside from the experience and the integrity uh, that I believe all FBA agents uh, have, um, and obviously a certain level of success to be uh, within the FBAA, um, it's actually, in my mind, it's, it's the ability to assess risk. I mm. think it can, can, be, can be compared to um, somewhat like a financial advisor. Um, well, it's not dissimilar to being, being a financial advisor. I mean, I know I speak for all FBA agents when I say that if we're in a position where we are um, to have quite a significant bearing on spending other people's money, I mean, I know that we all take it very, very seriously. So um, engaging the FBAA, we, um, I think we're much better positioned with the experience, et cetera, to assess the risks within the game because it's not an easy game it's it's a hell of a lot of fun um it's different things to different people but um you know it can be very profitable can be very fun but it can also be very costly if you don't know what you're doing so i think by using an fba member it's you decrease the potential for loss uh decrease the uh, decrease the um time that it can take from go to point a to b uh, so, using my own example, using my own ex- to draw my own experience to give you examples of that, uh, how we can assist um, people wishing to come into the game, or perhaps people on the fringe of the game that uh, you know have dabbled but they'd like to take it further. Um, I think that well, the first thing I ask people, what's the end game? You know, what do you yeah. want out of the game? As I say, there's different things to different people in the horse game, but some people just want to buy a couple of race horses to race, to have a beer and a bet with their friends. Other people, you know, they, they want to use it. They want to, they wish to, you know, make a going concern out of their business. They want, you know, they, they want to up the investment, buy a farm, etc. So I always ask, what's your goal? Uh, where are you at at present? We, I try and review the people's stock where they're at, consolidate their stock, Um you know, make if, if there's a, you know, if they've got a lot of stock that just needs to be moved on before we reinvest, I always say, well, look, we need to, you know, dilute your assets here, uh, basically sell off this stock, keep this horse, et cetera. Uh, and obviously budget is crucial. Now, not every person needs a million dollars to start the game. Um, so, you know, we cater as an FBA association for um, different levels of investment. So if I can give you an example, I have a client who, you know, they're a, they're a, they're a um, successful sort of business people that raced a few in partnership, et cetera. Um, to cut a long story short, their enjoyment comes from buying winglings to grow out to race. They've got their own farm. They enjoy farming them out. We've had quite a bit of success not um, spending a whole lot of money. Um, so that was their little niche. So we basically sold off a lot of their racing stock that were just dead wood. Uh, we asked, I asked them what level, you know, how much they wanted to spend, how many. So we bought horses, they grew them out, they had a lot of fun doing that. And now it's basically with the winnings that we've had, it's become somewhat of a self funding enterprise. So, you know, now of you know, they wish to sort of up, up the ante, so I've got them into a few well bred fillies with leading trainers, etc. etc. So that's one example. Another client 
who's been with me for a few years, he also had a lot of racing stock uh, and he wished to get into more of the trading breeding side of things so again we ask you know where do you where do you see yourself in five years what's the budget let's have a look at your stock sell a lot of it down keep this one uh and you know we've had a lot of fun a lot of success buying young mares off track putting them in foal selling them for a profit or buying younger mares in foal keeping the foal and, and making the decisions uh about what we do with them from from that point of view and again we're you're not going to have a home run in every horse but by playing the numbers game, investing in a sector of the market that they're comfortable with. Um, you know, we just build on the success, hopefully, and uh, go on to bigger and better things. So, again, Len might have some examples uh, from his client base as well. It's much similar, uh, David. We're a bit like a, a risk analysis, you know, and, and, you, and you're trying to forecast uh, the future and, and the best way to go about with your stock. So it, you're always... One thing I find is you, you always got to try and sort of work out with your client um, where they want to get to with with their investment. Um, you know, if they're breeding to race or they're, they're breeding to sell, there's, you know, you can just do things completely wrong if, if all you want to do is breed to race yeah. um, and spend unnecessary money. Mm. Um, so it's always important to sort of work out what, what you're trying to achieve and then try and find the best way to achieve the end goal um, and um, minimising as, as much risk as possible. Um, I think a question I'll, I'll start asking each of the members that join us on this podcast. Lenny, I'll start with you. What do you, what do you love about what you do? Because I think the passion in both you and Dave's voices today, and look, we're midway through a, a fairly busy yielding season. You've done a lot of work pre today you've got more work ahead of you than the mayor sales start but the enthusiasm's there and the passion's there what, what do you love about being an agent Len? well we're just all racing tragics aren't we <laughs> love racing but um it's a passion for so many so the, the probably the thing that i get the most satisfaction from is uh it's when a client sort of approaches you and they and they give you a task like they so they they might want to win their hometown cup or they're breeding a few mares and they finally want to get into the book one sales. So your job then is to try and make them achieve that goal. And I think what I've found is most of your clients actually become your mates because you you share the same interest. And you're invested um, in their journey by virtue of your your work. So if you achieve the goal and and you can see the, the enjoyment that they're getting... That makes me happy, you know, because it's, it, it, hey, it, it, we, we, we work to, to, to live, but it, it, it's a job where you, you get so much enjoyment out of seeing other people's enjoyment. Without putting religious terms on it, Dave, it's, it's really a vocation, isn't it? Because a little bit of you, it's attached to, to each purchase that you make. What do you love about what you do? Everything. I'm, um, I'm very lucky because I've always known what I wanted to do, so, uh, but. Oh, look, it's everything. I mean, there's there's so many different facets to it. But, I mean, it probably stems from the love of the horse. I mean, I've always loved horses. You know, I love the, uh, everything about them. They're very, you know, I won't get too flowery about it, but, like, you know, they're beautiful animals, very forgiving. You know, I love the smell of horses. I just, you know, I love the sound of horses during the, the, the you know, at a racetrack, uh, at a yearling sale, clip-clopping along the pavement looking at horses. But I 
love winning, but um, <laughs> while we're in a game of uh, game of uh, much, certainly makes it more enjoyable. But we're in the horse business, but it's actually it's a it's very much a people game, and I, I enjoy the different characters that you meet. I mean, the, the colourful and wonderful and people that you meet within the game that, that really uh, stimulates me because as, as Lenny has said you know when you become clients and they set your task it, it's really a puzzle looking for a solution so I enjoy that mental and you know it's, it's basically a, a never-ending treasure hunt trying to find you know mm-hmm. a, a certain uh, a winner for the budget that you know a, a, a yearling you know my sale junkie love going to a sale and um, you know looking for for horses that you think yeah, we've all bought good horses, we've all bought mediocre horses, but the pursuit of those horses, is, so those people that you're on the journey with, they do become your friends more often than not. Um, and um, as I say, I love everything about them. I, mean, I had one thing a gun to my head to say what I enjoy most is actually picking, trying to pick race horses, not pin hooks to trade, but horses, young horses to grow out to race. That's what I really get a. I, uh, excited about so um, hopefully there's many more out there that uh, Len and I can pick out 100% <laughs> group one ones <laughs> yes that'll be handy gentlemen we're out of time oh, we could have talked all day and uh, particularly you know started delving into some of the success stories and all the rest of it but I want to thank you both for for joining me on episode two of the shortlist Leonard Russo bluegrass bloodstock Dave me pinhook bloodstock international thanks for your time thanks very much shark thank you shark thanks for appreciate it well that was episode two of the shortlist thanks to our guests today and for more information or to find out how to get in contact with any fbaa members go to bloodstockagents.com.au